0: Good morning, shall we pray? Father God, thank you for this time. We ask that it would be set apart for you to do your work and to further your purposes in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's March 1942, Second World War, War on the Peninsula, Bataan Peninsula, in the Philippines. And the commander of the Allied forces is a man called Douglas MacArthur. He's a general and on the 11th of March he's commanded to leave the Philippines much against his wishes by the American President Theodore Roosevelt. And so when he leaves he hands over command to another general called Jonathan Wainwright and he says to Wainwright the last words that he says are do not surrender. And then, of course, the famous last words when he leaves the Philippines are, I will return. The Japanese attack the peninsula, and over the next two to three months, it gets steadily harder and harder for the soldiers. They begin to run out of ammunition, out of food, out of medical supplies. And eventually, <coughs> and this I'm quoting, far beyond any expectation of human endurance, they persist And finally surrender. They're all taken captive and they're marched for 55 miles through the jungle on what has become known as the Bataan Death March because so many of them died in the process they were already run down and exhausted and tired and wounded and sick. Uh, Jonathan Wainwright the general is the highest ranking official that uh, officer, I beg your pardon, who's ever been captured by the Japanese. They're delighted and so they parade him through all their major cities in abject humiliation and then they send him off to Manchuria in China to a prisoner of war camp where he languishes for the next three years. It's now 1945, um, the 6th of May, I beg your pardon, the, the 14th of August, And uh, the Japanese have surrendered, so they send out a command to all of the commanding officers in their prisoner of war camps to say that you must also surrender and hand over command of the camp to the senior ranking army officer in the camp. But the commander of the Manchurian camp decides not to do that, so they continue for several months with the status quo until eventually an airplane lands and another general comes out and he comes into the camp he calls Jonathan Wainwright the commander of the camp, the prisoners of war, the soldiers, the guards and he hands over command to General Wainwright. So for three months General Wainwright and the other prisoners of war continued as prisoners when in actual fact the truth was that they had been set free And when the information came, when the truth arrived, the truth set them free. Let's read from today's passage and we'll pick up the story again. We're in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 3 to 14. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. General Wainwright had an identity as a general, a soldier, a free soldier. But then he lost that identity when he became a prisoner but on the basis of the allied victory his identity was restored and it made all the difference to him and that's because identity is hugely important craig touched on this last week when he talked about the importance of identity for mission for the christian mission gideon had a mission but he couldn't see that he was a mighty warrior and so the first thing that god said to him was greetings mighty warrior. And of course Gideon at the time was busy skulking in a wine press trying to hide away from his enemies. What we're going to learn today is that identity is not only important for mission but it's also important for our lifestyle. It has implications for the way we live. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to define our identity in relationship to lifestyle and then we're going to explore two implications of our identity, a general implication and a specific one for our lifestyles. So let's begin by defining our identity. Turn to verse 8. Paul makes a truly remarkable claim. He says, at one time you were darkness but now You are light in the Lord. He doesn't say you are like light. He says you are light. He doesn't say sometimes you're light and sometimes you're darkness. No, he says at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And this is talking about a fundamental change in identity. And if you think that being a prisoner of war or a free soldier with the rank of general are poles apart, then you need to think again because what Paul is talking about here is something that is even far more radical than that. Why? Because darkness and light cannot be mixed. They're immiscible. Darkness and light are mutually exclusive. Darkness is the absence of light. A room is either in the dark or it has a light in it. Let's go back to the very beginning. Adam and Eve were created As children of light and they lived in that identity just as General Wainwright before the Second World War lived in his identity as a general of the army but Adam and Eve through their rebellion became the opposite they became children of darkness they fell captive to the enemy just like General Wainwright did and they lost their identity And as a result, every human being that has ever walked the face of this earth has been born as a child of darkness. Humans have lost their identity as children of the light. But, and here's the truth, the truth that sets us free, the truth that changes our identity. When Jesus defeated Satan on the cross, he made it possible for our identity as children of the light to be restored just as the victory of the allies allowed Wainwright's identity to be restored and that's why Paul says but now you are light not simply now you are light but now you are light in the Lord and he makes it clear over and over again in Ephesians that through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ we are placed in him and in him we are no longer darkness we are now light. So that's what you are folks you are light in the Lord. But what are the implications of this and let's start as I mentioned earlier with a general implication. Have a look at verse 8b. It says there walk as children of light. There's a certain way of living that goes with being a child of the light and then he describes it for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right, and true. And then he says, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Just imagine how your life would be different if you kept that in mind on a daily basis. There's two things here. First of all, walking as children of the light is a fruitful way of life. And then secondly, it's a discerning way of life. Let's have a look at the fruitful part first. Children of the light live a life That is distinguished by those three things Goodness, righteousness and truth And now if you contrast that with the children of darkness We've seen in verse 6 that Paul describes the children of darkness As children or sons of disobedience This is the opposite On the one hand we have disobedience On the other hand we have obedience to God Which leads to goodness, righteousness and truth and in the Bible, God and Jesus are often identified with light. Listen to this from 1 John 1, 1.5. It says that God is light. And then in John 1.4, it says, In Jesus was life, and that life was the light of men. Think of it in this way. A plant receives light, which enables it to become fruitful. And Jesus is light. He is our light and he's the one who enables us to produce the fruit of goodness, righteousness and truth. What do those things mean? Goodness is just simply uprightness of heart, motives, thinking and of life. Righteousness is keeping to God's code of conduct and truth is self-evident. So it's good news folks. That the work that goes with being a child of light depends primarily on God. He is the one who provides the light that produces the fruit. We can't do this on our own. God started the work at conversion and he will help us to complete it. But you also need to play your part. And this brings us to the second aspect of verse 8, where it says that we need to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now Paul established a foundation for this when he covered the theory of purity in chapter four and he taught us that Jesus can become our teacher in every moment and every circumstance of our lives. Remember he told us that we needed to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and we talked about the fact that the spirit of the mind means the attitude of the mind. If we take on an attitude of submission and obedience to God, then Christ will become our teacher at the very center of our being. It also involves some work on our part. The word translated to discern means to test, examine, prove or scrutinize. Those are some of the words that go with it. You're going to need to work, but fortunately Jesus is there he's your teacher so that's the first implication of the fact that we are children of the light and that we need to live accordingly your life needs to be fruitful and discerning but let's move on to the second implication which is a more specific one and paul starts to talk about the fact that we need to reject shameful sins this is the second implication of being children of the light and Unfortunately folks this is where it becomes a little bit uncomfortable. Why? Well we've just said that the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and what becomes clear now is that it's God who gets to decide what is good and what is right and what is true. But sadly we as human beings want to define that for ourselves in order to further our own interests and sometimes our ungodly desires. And society around us is doing a very good job of trying to define what is good and right and true in different terms to the ones that God uses. And it's, it's uncomfortable. I was chatting to a friend of mine who's a pastor. He was talking to a, a couple who had kids, um, adult children in their 20s, talking about how the children had moved in with their respective girlfriends or boyfriends, that they were sleeping together. And my, my pastor friend said, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. And they said, oh, no, but it, it, it's okay. Because, you know, they're in committed, loving relationships. And um, we think that they're probably planning to get engaged and to get married. Folks, this is not the way the Bible defines what is right and wrong in a sexual context. So let's have a look at verses 3 to 6. Because this lists in God's terms what is forbidden because it belongs to darkness and not to light. Verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity, there's a bit of a distinction there, or covetousness, which is sort of like greed, must not be named among you as is proper among saints. And when we look at that word saints, it's, it's a translation from what is literally holy ones ones who are set apart for a special purpose, set apart as holy for God. So let's have a look at the meaning of verse 3 before we move on to the motivation that Paul gives for obedience to these commands. The word translated sexual immorality is used in the New Testament, the same word, for sexual sin of any kind. And although we don't have time to cover the references here, The Bible forbids, obviously, adultery, being unfaithful to your spouse. It forbids fornication, which is sex outside of marriage, even when you're engaged, before you've made that final commitment before God and before the community and one another. It forbids it. It forbids homosexuality. And I mention these things because they are beginning to gain acceptance in Christian circles, Christians are practicing these things which don't go with being children of the light, and in some way they have been deceived by society around them into thinking that it's okay. Impurity means moral filthiness that is primarily sexual in nature. And in our day and age, you can't go further than a better example, which is pornography. Looking on nakedness for the purpose. Of pleasure having lustful thoughts and seeking anything for sexual arousal but what does Paul mean when he says that these things shouldn't even be named among you he means it should be impossible to identify or find these things among you it should be impossible to identify these sins amongst our body at harvest and I, I like the NIV translation that says, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. Not even a hint. And when I read that, it brought to mind flirting. Because when we flirt with other people, that is a hint of sexual immorality. It's just the start. And so that's another thing. Don't do it, folks. Don't, don't flirt with someone who isn't your, your spouse don't um, send flirtatious um, whatsapp messages anything on social media not even a hint and then lastly you might be quite surprised by the fact that he includes covetousness which is quite a in a sense it's an old-fashioned word the NIV translates it as greed but when we think of greed we often think of in terms of, of food and and perhaps money so let's just define covetousness what is it? It's an envious eagerness to possess something, anything. It's a feeling of grudging admiration and a desire to have something that is possessed by another. Or it's extreme greed for material wealth. And so we can covet money, we can covet pleasure, we can covet power, we can covet popularity, we can cover success or sex. And the Jewish people, I think, were onto something very useful to us today. They had a concept that idolatry was at the root of all sin, putting anything else in the place of God. And that greed sort of like encompassed all sins. And I think then it should come as no surprise when we read in verse 5, that immoral, impure or covetous people, those are using the same words that we've just been looking at in verse 3, are called idolaters. So what's the connection between these sins and idolatry? Well for a start, sexual sin and covetousness are closely related because sexual sin is a form of covetousness. But there's more. You see, covetousness is a misplaced desire. Your overriding desire in life should be for God. But when the desire for something else takes the place of God and and God is pushed into second place, then that desire becomes covetousness. And then as that covetousness starts to consume your life, and and make no mistake, this is what happens with covetousness. It grows and it grows and it grows until it edges everything else out. It then becomes your idol. And in the words of a man, uh, his name is so funny, it's Snodgrass. I can't believe um, how unfortunate that is. Um, He says that desire takes the place of God for it rather than he determines life. In other words, that desire starts to control the way you think. It starts to control the way you feel. It starts to control the way you act. So I hope this is making sense because it should be ringing bells with you. You know, earlier on in Ephesians, we were talking about how the flesh tries to control us with ungodly desires and passions. This is exactly what we're talking about. We need to crucify the flesh. We need to put those ungodly desires to death, just as Christ was prepared to sacrifice himself on the cross. So that's the meaning of verse 3. But what about the motivation? What is the motivation for rejecting sexual sin and covetousness? Well, Paul just says it's simple. These things are improper for God's holy people. Just as it was improper for General Wainwright To be a prisoner, to be scrabbling for food, to be taking beatings. All of those things didn't go with his true identity as a general. In the same way, it's improper for us to indulge in these things. Just think of the fact that we are saints. Remember, I mentioned earlier that we are holy ones, set apart for God. Folks, the reason why God created us is so that we could have a relationship with Him and so that we could be in a sense, reserved by him to worship him, to glorify him, to honor him, to reflect him. But when these other things become our idols, it means that we're no longer worshiping God. We are God's holy people. We are children of the light. We have been set apart to worship God and not to worship the false idols that have been listed here. And folks, if that isn't enough to motivate purity remember that verse 3 starts with the word but in other words he's contrasting something what he's doing is he's contrasting those shameful sins with the example of Christ what did Christ do he sacrificed himself on the cross for us we need to sacrifice our selfish desires so that we can live out our identity as children of the light So sexual immorality and moral filthiness and covetousness, these things don't go with God's holy people. But then neither do sins of the tongue. Look at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but rather let there be thanksgiving. Let's do the same thing again. Let's look at the meaning and then the motivation that, that Paul gives us here the meaning of obscenity I think that's pretty clear no cursing no shameful or indecent talk and I just have to say uh, to young people it's tempting I find it very tempting as a teenager to use obscenities to use bad language as a way of fitting in of a way of trying to prove myself as a teenager and it, I just don't do it because I can just see in my own life it took me years to clean up my language And even now, occasionally, I use obscenities much to my shame. I just (laughs) want to try and prevent you from um, experiencing that in your own lives. So that's pretty straightforward, obscenity. But the two others are a little bit more subtle and nuanced. Foolish talk. I think this is a good definition, once again, from our, our friend Snodgrass. Foolish talk is speech from someone without understanding speech from someone without understanding i wonder how often the talk on social media platforms is foolish talk because it comes from a poor understanding of reality it comes from a wrong interpretation an ungodly interpretation of reality spreading rumors without knowing what the truth is being alarmist is foolish talk and we mustn't get dragged into it this does not go with our identity as children of the light and then coarse joking refers to smutty joking of a sexual nature and and to be honest I find this hard because sometimes dirty jokes just can be funny and yet many of us recognize that they are taboo for Christians but sometimes we indulge in it in a slightly different way it's a slightly more subtle form of coarse joking amongst Christians. Let me explain The word that Paul uses suggests something that is easily turned. Okay, In other words, people use language that is suggestive and can be easily turned to mean something sexual, and and they do it intentionally. Don't do that. Don't introduce sexual innuendos or double entendres into your speech, because these things are not fitting for Christians. Here's a great quote by a man called Caird. He says, where vice is considered amusing, the practice of it comes easily. And Paul addresses speech because we know from other places in the Bible that the way we speak is often an indication of what is in our heart. So our speech should be clean because our hearts have been made clean by the Holy Spirit. That's the meaning. What is the antidote? So I wonder if you've ever considered thanksgiving as a viable antidote to sexual immorality or covetousness because this is what Paul does. He said, instead, let there be thanksgiving. The reason for that is that sexual immorality and any form of covetousness begins with a sense of dissatisfaction. We become dissatisfied with what we have, which is the opposite of thankfulness, And so a desire for something else starts to grow inside of us. For example, adultery may be born when we become dissatisfied with our spouse. And yet we should be giving thanks for our spouses. Our spouses are God's provision for us, our partners to extend his kingdom and to live a life that honors and glorifies God. And the interesting thing about an attitude of gratitude, I don't know if you found this, It starts with a very grudging thank you for this and then something stirs inside of you and then it's a thank you for that and before you know it it's like a wildfire has been set alight in your heart of gratitude and thanksgiving because thanksgiving feeds on itself and it's very hard to be covetous when you're being thankful. What it does thanksgiving is it focuses your attention on God who is the source of your satisfaction rather than some sort of unbridled desire, which is never, ever going to satisfy you. So, there's to be no hint of sexual sin or covetousness at harvest. Why? Because we've been set apart to worship God and not to be dominated by idols and the flesh. And then secondly, we need to cut out verbal sins. They don't go with Christianity, but replace that sort of talk with thanksgiving. Now, having commanded the Ephesians and given them some positive reasons to obey, Paul is so convinced about this that he also gives them some dire warnings. And we're going to close with these. They're in verses 5 to 6. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Idol worship, folks, can become so entrenched in a person's life that there is no longer room to worship God. And yes, that is a process. And just because you might have fallen once or even many times, doesn't necessarily mean that you're at that sort of exclusion and wrath end of the scale. But don't risk it by pushing the boundaries. Why would you want to? Why not produce fruit in light of what you are? Don't go back to being a prisoner of war. And these shameful vices, they're not fruit of a child of God. And if we've been born again, we should be growing steadily into the likeness of Christ. If you allow these vices to take the place of God permanently, you will not have an inheritance in the kingdom and you will experience the wrath of God. Verse 6 contains some significant concepts, the ones of deception and disobedience. The fact that the idolater is disobedient implies that he should know better. And if you're a Christian today, you should know better than to think it's okay To get away with shameful vices and if you think it is okay a bit like that those parents and look folks I I fully get it it's hard when our children are not walking um, the, the way that we should see them walking in terms of the scriptures it is hard but we mustn't end up in a place where we're deceived and thinking that it's actually okay when the desire is taking the place of God it will deceive you and I don't know if you found this but if, if desire is starting to um, take preeminence in my life, it's amazing the kind of logic that it'll come up with. It's amazing how it'll convince me that what I'm about to do, even though it's clearly forbidden by Scripture, is actually okay. It's justified in some way. And we need to be so careful of that. Earlier on in chapter 1, Paul talks about the fact that he remembers the Ephesians regularly, daily in his prayers. And he prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they would know what is the hope to which they are called, what are the riches of their glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power available to them because Christ was raised from the dead. This is all about identity. This all speaks about identity. I pray, just as Paul did, that God would start to reveal to you how amazing your identity is in Christ. Why would we want to go back to being children of darkness when we're children of light? Just as Jonathan um, Wainwright would have been so frustrated and angry that for three months he continued living as a prisoner of war when he didn't need to. So guys, I would challenge you. Read through Ephesians again. Such a short book. Have a look and see all the different places where it talks about what accrues to us as children of the light. What what, what is our authority? What is our, our, our power? What are our privileges? Start to be stoked up in your heart as you read those things. And then also spend a little bit of time doing a quick audit of your life. Is there anything that you're involved in that doesn't go with being a child of the light? Ask God to forgive you. He knows that we're going to make mistakes. He knows that we're going to fail. That's why He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross. He wouldn't have had to if He knew that we weren't, that we were going to be perfect. Forgiveness is available in Jesus Christ, and you can be light in the Lord. Shall we pray? Father God, I want to commit every person at Harvest as they read through Ephesians looking to see what their identity is in Christ. I pray that you would inspire them. I pray that you would open the eyes of their hearts. And Father, also as they do in audit, help them not to be deceived. Help us all to see how it is that you want us to live. And then in those difficult areas, as we try to discern what your will is, we ask you, Lord Jesus, to be our teacher, to be the one who helps us. And we want to renew the attitude of our minds right now, the spirit of our minds. We, we want to say, we, we love you, Lord Jesus, and we want to be in obedience to you. And we know that as we do that, you will come and teach us and show us, even in those areas that are difficult and challenging. We pray all of these things in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, I hope you have a great week, and we'll continue to pray for you as, you as you follow this journey, as we all follow this journey together. Cheers for now.